Stacey Abrams loses in Georgia, but does she really? And Joe Biden speaks out on the possibility of Hunter Biden being investigated. You're watching the Propaganda Report's Drive Time News Blast. I am Brad Binkley. I want to show you something real quick that I just noticed looking at the Drudge Report, which is that they've taken a lot of the headlines off of their site. They used to just have a whole bunch of headlines, like way too many. And it's like they've cut that in half. I just find it strange. I'll see if I can, I don't know if it really shows up here, like the way I'm going to minimize the screen a little to see if you can see it all. If not, I'll just, okay. So you can barely see that on the screen, but what we have is they have four columns for those of you, most of you probably been to Drudge before three columns. And they used to just have a whole bunch of headlines. I mean, this is probably what? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fourteen. There, they used to probably have thirty at least on each line, but they clearly have cut them in half. Because I was scrolling, I was like, "Wait a minute, th this is all," which is actually I think probably pretty good. But I just find it strange that they did that, and that they did it when they did it. I don't know if there's if it's just a coincidence that that happened right after the midterm elections. So that all the headlines can focus on the agenda they're trying to push, which I talked about yesterday, I think is the great reset and not distract with that. I, I don't know, but that's, that's definitely a change in the Drudge website. Okay. So I told you yesterday that I would talk about the Georgia elections today and I will, or earlier this earlier today, I guess, when you listen to that, to that other show, if you did the Georgia elections, Brad Raffensperger, the pretend Republican, the corrupt Secretary of State, who the media made a darling by because of the way he handled a Trump phone call where they say Trump tried to get him to find a bunch of votes that did not exist. When if you actually listen to the whole call, you see that Trump was saying the votes exist and we know you have resources that we don't want to continue to occupy. So if you just look in these places and once you find the amount that we need, for the outcome to be different, then you can stop looking and your resources can go elsewhere. He wasn't trying to get him to do anything that was illegal, but that's not how they tell the story. And because Raffensperger goes along with their story, he is their hero. Well, he won and that's bad because he's terrible. He defeated libertarian Ted Metz and Democrat. I can't remember what her name was, but she's She's like a candidate who just loves being around Stacey Abrams all the time because all she does is post pictures of her with Stacey like she's a fangirl of her. B, I think, might be her name. And when it comes to the governor's race, Stacey Abrams, as you guys know, she lost. Kemp defeated her, I think, like 43% uh, to 46% with Shane Hazel getting like 1% of the vote. But did she lose is what I've been thinking about because Stacey's entire career from back when she was a teenager, basically. She gains power by losing or by positioning herself as someone who was wronged or by positioning herself as someone who never really had a chance anyway, but gave it the good fight, which is how some people are talking about her on social media. They're talking about it as though she never had a chance to win, but she fought for people of color and minorities anyway. And that's what she calls. She says people of color. And so they were praising her. Now, there have been articles that were 
talking badly about her as though they were kind of going lukewarm to her. But I don't know that that's all the way the case, especially when it comes to progress to progress as an activist, because that's right in her wheelhouse. And when you look at 2018, Stacy lost, but did she, did she really lose? Because no one's ever turned losing into such power influence and fame and prominence. She became a household name by losing. She got incredibly wealthy by losing. I'm going to show you an Axios report that they did on Stacey Abrams that shows you her wealth before and after she ran for governor of Georgia in 2018 called the making of Stacey Abrams. Here is the graph of her annual income. In 2017, Stacey Abrams earned $177,000. That's 2017, which by the way, that's not bad for someone who claims to be oppressed and poor, which is what she was doing back then. She's making 177 k a year. That's, that's not a poor person or an oppressed person. And then we have in 2018, the year of that last run for governor, $458,000, almost half a million dollars the year she ran. That was her income. So by running for office, she more than doubled her income. 2019, the year after she ran, $907,000. Now let's go on to 2021. $3.6 million. Stacy made $3.6 million in 2021 after she had done her failed attempt of, at running for governor and then acted like she was going to run for president and wasn't cho chosen. That's another loss. So she lost out on being chosen vice president. How'd she fare after that? Well, she made $3.6 million the next year. I think she did all right. Up from 177K in 2017 before. And here she's made, it says as of March, she's made half a million dollars this year. You know, if you see white men can't jump, and the girl plays Woody Harrelson's girlfriend says, sometimes when you win, you lose. Sometimes when you lose, you win. Sometimes when you win or lose, you, you actually tie. Well, Stacy, when she loses, it's clear that she always wins because she has brilliantly weaponized identity politics in a way that really few other people can do because she fits the role well. And she talks about this. Like she's open about, how identity politics has gotten her to where she is today. Here's her at the Chatham House. I wrote in a recent article in uh, response to Francis Fukuyama that I love identity politics. They work for me. This is what she does. She organizes around losing and claiming to be oppressed, as I mentioned. You think she would have made that much money if she had won governor? $3.6 million in 2021. You think there's any chance of that? No, I don't think there is. Not at all. I think she gained far more power, far more prominence, and far more wealth that we even know of. There's probably more than that by losing. And it's all because she has weaponized identity politics to do this. She's done it masterfully. She's like perfectly cast in that role. My point is that Stacy's not going anywhere. I don't know what exactly she's going to do next, but it will involve organizing and it will involve using those people she organizes as a weapon to get what she wants to increase her power, prominence, and wealth. And I'm gonna, here's a clip right here of her saying what she's going to do. And she says this consistently, and she means it. I am here because 
This is her concession speech. This is a moment where despite every obstacle, we are still standing strong and standing tall and standing resolute and standing in our values. And we know Georgia deserves more. And whether we do it from the governor's mansion or from the streets, whether we do it from the Capitol or from our communities, people we know need to see us. I'm going to take that back. Look how intense she looks right now. She is angry. For the governor's mansion may have come up short. I'm pretty tall. She is. And I, I am here because where despite every obstacle, we are still standing strong and standing tall and standing resolute and standing in our values. And we know Georgia deserves more. And whether we do it from the governor's mansion or from the streets, whether we do it from the Capitol or from our communities, we are going to fight for more for the state of Georgia. That is what we're here for. From the governor's mansion or the streets or the, the capitals and their community. She has literally done this. She has weaponized mobs. She did this in college to build her career, to get her first jobs, and use these mobs on the streets like terrorists do to threaten people into giving her what she wants. Otherwise, she'll unleash the people she influences on them. The clip continues. That is our obligation. That is our responsibility. That's her obligation to do that, to go to the streets. Okay, so she's going to take a few days off. She's not going to do what she did last year because she has to do something differently. Maybe she's going to go to a tiki bar and get some of her man slaves, which I'm certain she has, to massage her for a week or so. And then she will be announcing something else. And here is her talking about how righteous she is. Stand and fight and, and believe. I say that our vision and our values are never clouded that our intention is righteous, that our future is bright. And while we may not write the story today, there will always be another chapter. So her intentions are righteous. And I point that out because that is what motivates her. The ends justify the means methods, which most people don't realize how much she embraces those methods. And she always has. It's how she's gotten to where she is today. And it's because... When people convince themselves of how righteous they are, like Stacy does, and how moral they are, then they perceive their morals and their values, which Stacy very much says in other video clips I have of her that most people have not seen. I don't have them on me right now. I will put them in a later show. But they are so morally superior to everyone else that it justifies doing anything to put them in the position of power to be able to impose her morals and values on everyone else, which I played that clip when we interviewed Shane Hazel. I understand what I believe. I wrote it down. When I stood for office in 2006, I had a set of things I thought I knew to be true, but I was going to have the chance for the first time in my life to impose my truth on others. It is a very, very seductive notion being able to make other people do what you want, believe what you want, live as you would have them live. And the reason for that sentiment is because of this moral high ground and the righteousness. So, you know, she's going to be back because she has to, because she's better than everybody else in her mind.
Okay, speaking of wealth, the midterm elections this year are on track to cost $16.7 billion. This is at the state and federal level, and this makes the them the most expensive midterm elections ever. This is according to OpenSecrets.com. For perspective, it says the contest will nearly double the cost of the 2010 midterms, more than double the 2014 midterms, and are on pace to roughly equal the 2022 gross domestic product of Mongolia. A bunch of people talking about trying to save the world, or save the country, spending more money than Mongolia. At least $1.1 billion given at the federal level so far this election season has come from a small group of donors. Who donated the most? Who do you think? Hedge fund founder George Soros gave the most, $128 million. He's been paying Stacey Abrams for like a decade. His entire family has. It's like she works for them. So I've been seeing some tweets on social media about who's at fault. And these tweets are blaming libertarians or people who voted for third parties for Herschel Walker and Warnock going to the runoff in the Senate. And both sides are blaming them. Democrats and Republicans on social media or Twitter are blaming them, which they both can't be right. That's impossible. So either one of them is right and the other's wrong or both of them are wrong. I can see the logic and the reasoning that they're using there, but I, I can also reject that logic and reasoning. The majority of Americans, when asked, and this is the case for every year, by polls, this is a recent Gallup poll, this is according to the Washington Post, they found that 42% of Americans identify themselves as independent, well ahead of the 29% that say they're Democrats and the 27 who identify as Republicans. So for, the independents completely outweigh the left and the right, yet most of them are still compelled to vote on the left or the right. Now, does that mean that they're libertarians or have to vote libertarian? Of course not. But for the ones who are trying to blame libertarians, if it's independents blaming them, instead of putting together an effort to make sure the candidate that you do want to vote for, instead of voting out of fear, is on the ballot and gets to go to the debates and figuring out how to change the system around that. Instead of doing that, they just vote Republican and then blame the other libertarians who didn't. The blame lies on the propaganda, the false choice propaganda, the lesser of two evils propaganda, one of the oldest propaganda techniques that is studied in literature. Like this is literally one of the oldest propaganda techniques most frequently used to divide and rule the people is the lesser of two evils propaganda. We give you two awful choices, both of which serve our overall goals, but give you a little bit of variation and difference so you can fight amongst each other. And you'll never actually vote for another party because we'll convince you that if you do, you'll let the evil enemy take over. That's the way our election system works. We tell people that it is their civic duty to vote for a candidate, even if they've never heard of the candidate, because they just want them to vote down ticket. Well, I've never heard of half these people. Vote for them anyway. It's your civic duty. And then they turn around and they tell you that to do your own research about a vaccine that should be researched is racist. So vote this letter. Don't even worry about who they are. And also don't do your own research. You racist. I mean, this is the logic that we apply in America. And while I get what people are saying, I do understand you can't blame the people who actually go out and vote for who they want to vote for instead of being propagandized and divided and conquered into voting mostly out of fear of a worst case scenario for a party 
and a candidate that you don't identify with and for the most part, don't like all that much. People will be like, well, it's just too important. This election is just a democracy's on the ballot. Evil's on the ballot. You can't do it. Well, if not now, then when? The reason they tell us that every election is the most important election of all time of history, most consequential in history, every single time they tell us that, 2016, 2018, 2020, 2022. But that's why they do that. So it's like, well, no, you just got to go left or right this time because the other ones don't have a chance. And this is the most important. Is there ever going to be a time where they're like, all right, guys, turns out this election is not all that important. So if you're ever going to vote a third party, just go for it this time because it doesn't really matter. That's not going to happen ever. Every time, it's always going to be the most consequential one. Always. This tactic is used to uphold and validate the system that allows those in power to maintain power while continuing to divide and conquer the public giving everyone the illusion of choice when the most prominent candidates tend to be ones that will serve their ends regardless of which one is chosen. And not all of them. At the lower levels, people can get in without being corrupted and co-opted. It's just challenging, I think, for people to get really high up without that happening. Maybe it's possible. So here's some more boasting by the Democrats, or not boasting, but the strategy we was talking about the ends justify the means a few moments ago. This is another story kind of related to that. This is an article about, if you recall, the funding of the mega MAGA Republicans. So all these Democrats funded these Republicans that were, quote, they questioned the election. And so they thought it would be easier for the Democrats to beat them. So they invested $19 million into mega MAGA Republicans in the primaries so that the Democrat could face an opponent that they believed was easier to beat. Well, if we accept that that happened and that this is true, then that strategy worked. It worked out very well for them. According to an analysis by the Washington Post, Democrats intervened in 13 primary races to support the more extreme right-wing Republican in the hopes that the Republican would be easier to defeat in the general election against a Democratic opponent. Of the six of those Republicans who won the primary, all of them lost the general election races by Wednesday. So their, their tactic worked. It was effective. Now, they had to give up voting in their own primaries because in the primaries in most states, or I think a lot of the states where this was happening, one of them was Georgia, you can't vote in both primaries. So they were confident that their person would win. Like Stacey Abrams had no challenger, so she was going to win. That They didn't have to cast their vote there so they could take their votes over to the Republican primaries where they could have some impact. So what message does this send? To me, I think it's just another, it just sends another message of the ends justify the means mentality that people are okay to do. So other Democrats that weren't willing to do this, they call them unethical. It sends a message that behavior that members of their own party call unethical, that if you do it anyway, you will be rewarded. That's how you get what you want. I mean, these people gave $18 million to candidates who they said were Nazi threats to democracy, basically. The worst thing ever to happen to the country. Evil. And they gave them a bunch of money. It's hard to take them seriously when they do that. Everything's like a false flag now. You fund the other people, you pretend to be them, and you commit crimes. This fits a culture of this ends justify the means mentality where people think it's okay to do unethical things because they believe themselves to have the moral high ground. It's a Stacey Abrams philosophy of politics is kind of what it is. And for those engaging in this 
type of behavior. One might look yourself in the mirror before the means you're willing to engage in to justify whatever ends you're after end up being more than just unethical and end up being criminal. Like much of the activity that activists were compelled to do by their organizers during the 2020 riots, the George Floyd riots, where many people ended up in prison, some with extended sentences. And I guarantee you the organizer of whoever those activists are isn't going to visit them in prison. All right, let's talk about those poll watchers real quick. So nothing happened with the poll watchers and the poll workers. They told us for months and months that there was going to be a confrontation because of MAGA, quote, election denying poll watchers who are just getting jobs poll watching so they can sabotage the election and do something crazy. We've been told that was the threat to democracy we were warned about, that that very thing. Insurrectionists are now poll watchers ready to do so. I mean, this was a lot of fear mongering was going on here. They said some very bad things about poll watchers, very mean. They did some smear pieces about poll watchers. Four 70-year-old people and one of them, CNN smearing, and all they're doing is just trying to do a good job make sure everything works right. And they know they have the microscope on them and they're doing everything in their power to make sure nothing even makes it look like they're breaking the law or doing anything not by the books. I know some people who did some poll watching and they were so by the books, it was unbelievable. They, they weren't going to do anything wrong. They were just trying to do a good job. But that didn't stop the media from smearing them and trying to demonize them. And then nothing happened. Now it's being reported that nothing happened, no major events, and that the threat didn't happen. How about an apology for the poll watchers? How about they say, we're sorry, we literally demonized you, turned you into Nazis, and called you a threat to democracy for the purpose of getting Democrats afraid and saying, I have to vote to stop this behavior because democracy is on the ballot. I mean, they affected the election with this propaganda, this fear-mongering. And then they say, oh, nothing happened. And then they forget about it. It's not out of the woods yet, though. We'll talk about that in a second. But no apology, no mention of it. Here's what some other measures that were taken. ABC News on the day of the election had a whole segment dedicated to monitoring the threat from this threat from so-called election deniers, poll watchers. The FBI sent out sent agents to various polling places in swing states so they could monitor in case of a threat. In Florida, they actually objected to it, and there was a, I can't remember what it was, but there was a back and forth, and they ended up making the feds stay outside, which I think is good. And then they do say the feds do watch occasionally. In the Florida case, they say, no, they don't usually come inside and watch. They usually stand outside and watch, and that's where they can stand this time. So that's how it went down there. I don't know what the standard is on the feds watching. I guess they just always watch. Then you have the Paul Pelosi story that they used to fuel the fears of election deniers doing something violent leading up to the election right before it, which you're told they're working as poll watchers and they will be there. Then headlines like this, concerns of violence grow as election day nears and concerns of political violence looms days before the midterms. Here's a headline. Conspiracy influenced poll watchers wearing tactical gear and staking out ballot drop boxes. And today, after the election, NPR, which was stoking those fears, says overall voting in the U.S. today was uneventful. And then it says 
In an election that had experts worried about vigilante poll monitors and the potential for danger for election workers, voting on election day seems to have gone off without any major incidents. How about an apology, NPR? You spent months demonizing these people and organizing people to get them to vote based around the fear. Unbelievable. So this was disinformation, it turns out, so far. But we're not out of the woods yet because of the counting that's continuing to go on. and. Because of the Senate race in Georgia between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. But now, instead of having everybody's focus divided between all the races around the country, when it gets the attention focuses in on these ballots being counted, finishing up the counting, and a couple a couple problems with printing machines that they they reported, and then on probably exclusively at this point. The Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock, home stretch for all the marbles in the Senate. If they wanted to do something to really demonize, quote, mega MAGA poll watchers, then that's when they do it. Because that's when everybody would be watching that one and only one race. And that's when they could maximize that fear. But nevertheless, I think there should have been an apology for all the poll watchers who worked Election Day and did nothing but their job. And I'm sure did a a fine job doing it because I think people who took those jobs take it very seriously. And I'm guessing they did an excellent job. But instead of giving them credit, CNN publishes an article titled How Election Officials Staved Off Chaos at Polling Places Tuesday. So they they gave the credit to the polling places and poll workers. So they, they must have tamed the beast. I mean, it's an insulting premise to anybody who's a poll watcher. Here's what it says. The fallout from former President Donald Trump's lies about the 2020 election and the fraud conspiracy theories, hostility towards election officials and promises of combative poll watching activities those falsehoods produced did not translate into widespread chaos at precincts around the country. Several factors contributed to the mostly drama-free administration of the midterms, according to election officials and voter advocates. Among them was the clear message Election officials in key states sent that disruptions at voting sites would not be tolerated. A federal judge's ruling that clamped down on some conduct viewed as intimidating outside of Arizona's ballot drop boxes during early voting was another. Was that even real? Did they ever find who those guys were? And did they ever prove that they actually had weapons? Because that whole thing was really, really flimsy. And they used alleged a little too much when they talk about it which is what they do when something doesn't have any evidence trail to follow. Yet that was, that was a blow to them. Then they say it was also two years of preparations and lessons learned from the difficulties in responding to disinformation that surrounded Trump's electoral loss in 2020 that helped stave off the election day confusion that could be exploited to cast doubt on the results. And then they go on to demonize the People who are saying there was a problem in Arizona with the Kerry Lake race. <laughs> they say, while there was little evidence on Tuesday of disputes over voting at the polls themselves, that didn't stop Trump and his allies who spread lies about the 2020 election. Always said that in from running the same playbook this year over routine issues in places like Arizona's Maricopa County. Still, those allegations were a reminder of the way these small administrative hiccups were seized upon to make baseless, sensationalistic fraud claims that permeated the 2020 vote. And here's where we're not out of the water yet. The coming days and possible weeks will provide plenty of opportunity for domestic and foreign actors to continue to undermine our elections and manufacture chaos. This was Chris 
Krebs, a former Department of Homeland Security official who led the agency's cybersecurity arm during the 2020 elections. It'll be a real test of our mental toughness, but I'm more than confident today than I was yesterday in our ability to cut through the nonsense and defend democracy. Oh, so that was a trial run yesterday, I guess. The big one's coming up. I mean, that's what they do. They undermine it and they manufacture chaos. And you notice how he said domestic and foreign actors? Putting those two together, like I said in yesterday's show, this, was, this is a global thing. Is why they're so giddy about winning because they won for Ukraine. They won for the Great Reset. All right, before we get to the final story, which will be about what President Biden said about Republicans possibly investigating his son, Hunter, I want to tell you what we're going to talk about in the DMBXR, which is Trump's letter to DeSantis and the strategy that I believe he's using in posting that letter yesterday. And how China and Russia are edging towards an alliance. So if you want to get access to that content, go to patreon.com slash propaganda report and subscribe there today. You will get this show, the DMB, minus the ads. I take the ads out for subscribers, plus the subscriber-only XR portion of the show combined into one show. And you'll get it with your private RSS feed from Patreon, which you just put into any podcast app, and you get that full show there. You can also support the show by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It helps us show up higher in the search rankings, and it also keeps me motivated. It makes me feel good. And I appreciate it when you guys do that. I really do. Okay. Patreon.com slash Propaganda Report. Also check out my website at PropagandaFight.com. On to the final story of the day. Here is President Biden being asked about the possible investigation of his son, Hunter, if the Republicans take over the House. Um, Republicans have made it clear that if they do take control of the House, that they want to launch a raft of investigations on day one into your handling of Afghanistan, the border. Uh, they want to look into some of your cabinet officials. They want to investigate you. They may even want to investigate your son. What's your message to Republicans who are considering investigating your family and particularly your son Hunter's business dealings? Lots of luck in your senior year, as my coach used to say. Look, um, I think the American public wants to move. Lots of luck in your senior years as your coach used to. What kind of response to that? It, it, it's your son getting investigated for the stuff on that laptop and also the uh, not just the tax problems, the hookers, the crack. Sorry. Let's hear that Look, again. During um, investigating your family and particularly your son Hunter's business dealings. Lots of luck in your senior year, as my coach used to say. Look, um, I think the American public wants to move on and get things done for them. And, uh, you know, I heard that there were, uh, it was reported, whether it's accurate or not, I'm not sure, but it was reported many times that Republicans were saying, and the former president said, how many times are you going to impeach Biden? You know, impeachment proceeding against Biden. I mean, I think the, re I think the American people will look at all of that for what it is. It's just, uh, I'm almost comedy. I mean, it's uh, well, that's the truth. You know, look, I can't control what they're going to do. All I can do is continue to try to make life better for the American people. Yeah. Which if your son Hunter was investigated and people had any confidence that he wasn't compromised and that might help some people. What a strange way to react. I mean, he didn't sound like he was worried about it at all. He used to get offended when people would ask him about it during interviews, but not that time. But it makes me wonder. Is he just so confident now because the right Republicans and Democrats got elected and none of the people who would actually really question his son or investigate his son are going to be there to, to do anything? 
I mean, that, that's kind of how it seemed like he responded. Like he knows he's got it under control. I know what the outcome is going to be. And yeah, they will investigate him because they have to do that to reflect the public opinion. And people just have too many questions about it. But they don't have to really do much of an investigation into him, you know, and they can kind of try and close the books on it. But I would also wonder if the media, as I mentioned, might actually highlight it and use it to get Biden to, to step down. But I guess ultimately when it comes to an investigation is what are they looking for? I mean, what else are they going to find that we haven't already seen or can't readily find available basically anywhere on the Internet? I mean, it's all over the Internet. It's literally an image of him in a sensory deprivation tank smoking crack and drinking malt liquor while he wanks it. I mean, that's already out there. There's a video of that. There's images of that. There's images of him and videos of him with what I believe was a Russian prostitute while on a month-long bender in Las Vegas being handled by two Russian dudes. Seems a little compromising. As pictures or videos of him running naked on a beach, going into somebody's house again, wanking it on camera. I mean, what else could they possibly find on Hunter that we don't already, that we can't already see, don't already know? I mean, there's literally an image of him with what some believe to be one of his relatives on there. The face is fuzzed out. I don't know if it's true or not. Could be wrong, but it doesn't matter because all the other stuff is bad. So what else are they looking for? It's like they're going to end their investigation. They're going to come out. They're going to introduce it like Comey did when he, when he listed all the crimes that Hillary did, then said, she gets off. Because everybody thought that, that he was going to actually do something. Then he, uh, he pulled the switcheroo there. Maybe that's what they're do, they'll do with Hunter. You know, they'll, they'll have a big press conference. They'll come out and they'll go, all we found in our investigation was chopped up body parts of six prostitutes. It's in his freezer. And we also found about a three and a half foot pile of dead babies that spilled out of his closet when we opened the door. Didn't find anything we can charge him on. And we confirmed that the allegations against him by the Republicans or Russian disinformation. He's free to go. You're free to go, Hunter. Oh, here's that bag of babies. Grabs the bag, the white clear plastic bag of closet babies he had. Takes them back home. Smokes crack out of them, maybe. I don't know. What else could we learn about Hunter through an investigation? Let me get I want to be on that investigative team. Maybe I don't, actually. There's no telling what they'll have to look at. So look how blatantly Stephen Colbert covers up the Hunter thing. I mean, this is shameless right here. GOP also plans to move, also plans to move this country forward by investigating the foreign business deals of Hunter Biden. I knew we should never have elected President Hunter Biden. <laughs> hold on, hold on. That sounds, we have an update from the CBS midterms projection coop. There's, what do we got here? That was literally a chicken Right after he said the Hunter Biden thing. Oh, I forgot we elected President Hunter Biden. That is the worst argument. That is so stupid. I mean, everybody knows that the problem with Hunter, other than all of the potential sex crimes, the crack, and the threat he poses to himself and others, that he's compromised. He was a crackhead. There's no way a crackhead's not compromised. And he just acts like, oh, we didn't elect President Biden. I mean, that is or, or the stupidest thing, the Hunter Biden thing. We didn't elect him. That anybody can make. So stupid that as soon as he could get, a, get it out of his mouth, his show decided to put a clucking chicken there to distract away from the subject. And then he goes on to a segment where he literally talks to chickens. What's going on? If you thought that was bad, 
You're going to love this. And we'll close the show out with Colbert celebrating the win of Fetterman in Pennsylvania over Oz. For those of you watching, just look how visceral his reaction here is. Case in point, in Pennsylvania, in one of the most closely watched races of the evening, John Fetterman won his Senate race against Dr. Mendez. Come on! I mean, I feel like he's going to run to the bathroom and, and pull one out. He's so excited. Man, I wonder if he's going to have him as a guest on the show. All right, that's going to wrap up the show. Thank you guys for watching and listening. If you want to get access to the subscriber-only portion of the show, the XR that we will be starting right after this, patreon.com slash propaganda report and subscribe there today. We will talk to you guys next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.